0: sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23-28. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we do thank You for Your great salvation. We do thank You for the perfect cleansing work of Christ. We thank You, O God, that we can come before You this day and that we can worship You and that we can hear Your Word. We do pray that You would be at work among us and in us, and that you would help us to to learn more of our, our great Savior. And we pray for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ that among us that you would work in their hearts and their lives and that you would cause them to to draw near to the Savior and to to cry out for salvation and place their faith in Him. But we do pray that you would be with Mr. Horn and that you would grant him grace and maybe give him words to speak that would that would help us and lord you pray that you would help each one of us that we would desire to serve you and to rejoice and give thanks to you amen
1: so as we've been going through hebrews 9 the writer of hebrews has reported repeatedly made the point as he goes through this passage that the specifically he calls it a parable that the things in the tabernacle they're just physical pictures of spiritual realities that they were never the end of themselves they were they were just supposed to point to things to be an exhibit of things that that people needed to know about this is why hebrews nine nine uses the word parabole, the Greek word which is transliterated parable that ninety percent of the time in the New Testament roughly it's translated parable and in, in in Hebrews 9.9, 9, it says, where the New King James translated as figures of things, that these are parables of things. And so as we look at these parables that God set before them day by day and week by week and year by year, they were all about representing and declaring the, the requirements for something spiritual and not just something physical. That the, the physical sacrificing of bulls and goats could never solve the problem. Because they had to just keep doing it over and over again. When we think about parables, and we think about Christ coming and speaking in parables, there's a characteristic of parables that you hear a parable, and it doesn't make sense until you you have some explanation about why it was told. Like think of the parable of the sower that Christ told. After saying it in Matthew 10, 13, Matthew 13, 10 through 13, he says, Or the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So, so God had set these parables before them. He had set all these sacrifices. He set the burnt offering and the peace offering and the, the grain offering and all these other parables He set before them, knowing that they wouldn't understand because God didn't explain them to them. He just gave them the parable without any explanation. Because He goes on and says, you know, the, the seed that goes on the shallow ground, that's a picture of the person who has faith, but then when persecution comes, that faith dies. The seed that's sown among the weeds, that it, it's a picture of somebody who has faith, but then the cares of the world and the deceitful riches, deceitfulness of riches come, and that faith dies. And the seed that's on the good soil, it grows and produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And as soon as you hear that, that description of the parable, all of a sudden the parable makes sense. But before that, when you just hear about the seed being thrown out and it going on the road, and all of a sudden these birds come down, You have no way to know that's a picture of Satan. And then then it's explained to you, and all of a sudden you go, the parable makes sense. And that's how we should think of these parables in the Old Testament. This is how we should think of the parables in Exodus and Leviticus. Is that it was given to them, it was right in front of them, they could see it, but because it wasn't explained to them, they didn't understand it, they didn't apply it right. They started to think... That those sacrifices made them a special people of God. That those sacrifices meant that they were eternally atoned for. Because the high priests went in and make atonement once a year. Because they never had the parable explained to them. But when Christ comes, he explains these parables to us. We're supposed to look at the life of Christ and then be able to go back to Exodus and Leviticus and go, Oh, that's what he meant. Because we have been given the explanation. Well, they have not. but that doesn't mean they didn't have a responsibility to understand and some of these things they could understand maybe not the whole thing about the sacrifice of christ but they could understand with just a little thought that of course something more was needed than the blood of bulls and goats it's not like other people didn't figure it out david could figure it out psalm 51 15 through 17 O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David understood that the sacrificial system was just parables. He got that it was just pointing to something greater, because if God wanted the blood of bulls and goats, he could create the blood of bulls and goats. It doesn't take much reasoning to figure out that there had to be that there these things had to be signifying something rather than being the end because if they were the end then why does god need man to be involved at all if he likes to see blood of bulls and goats be sprinkled places he doesn't need man to do that it was obvious to anybody who thought about it that maybe they couldn't understand the parable but to know it was a parable they should have known it was a parable and it's not like God didn't tell them either. How about Isaiah 1, 23? Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. Sorry, I grabbed the wrong verse there. Let me, let's go to Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, 22 through 23. For I do not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices... But this is what I commanded them saying obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I've commanded you that it may be well with you. When you think about the giving of the law before you know in Exodus 20 where they enter into covenant. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time. He doesn't spend basically any time other than saying you should rejoice and do sacrifices before me. He doesn't spend any time about the sacrificial system. He says, to be right with me, all you have to do is obey my commandments. The sacrificial system is not how you become right with God. It was never how you became right with God from the beginning. And he tells to Jeremiah, you can just look at it and see. You entered into Exodus 24, the covenant, the first covenant, before I gave you any of the laws about sacrifices. So the laws about sacrifices can't be the end of it because i hadn't even given them to you and he doesn't give the laws about all these sacrifices all these sacrifices he doesn't give them until they've already broken the covenant they've already rejected it they've already made the golden calf they've already they've already violated the covenant and then god says do these things so those things can't be the end because they entered into covenant without god even telling them about those things And they should have known that it would have required more than that. You know, one reason is because he didn't instruct them in all the offerings before they entered the covenant. Another reason that they should have known more, that it required more than the blood of bulls and goats. Because to leave Egypt, it required the blood of the firstborn of Egypt. It says in Psalms that they shed that blood so that the people of Israel could leave. And so if that's what the sacrifice that was required to leave Egypt, what kind of sacrifice is required to go into the true holy place, to go into the true presence of God? Obviously it required more than the firstborn sons of all of Egypt. And they knew that. They had it in front of them. Again, they may not have understood how all the things pointed to Christ, but they had to understand it pointed to something that it was not the end. They should have understood that it required a better sacrifice because year after year they made these sacrifices, these sacrifices that the high priest would make. He would put the sins on the scapegoat and send the scapegoat out and then he'd offer the other goat as a burnt offering. And then he'd have to come back and do it again the next year. If he actually made atonement for the sins of Israel, why does he need to do it again the next year? And so it was obvious by the repetition that this wasn't the real thing. This was just a picture of the real thing. This was just a figure. This was just a parable. This was the, the antitype that goes against a type. Something else obviously was needed. And another reason, it was given to them with such precision. This is a reason that that, that the writer of Hebrews has already said. The reason that it was laid out with such precision to Moses was because it was it had to match something else if it was just about if it was just about the the offerings themselves it didn't need to be laid out with such precision everything didn't need to be in a specific place but if you are trying to give a picture of something if you're trying to like set up an exhibit in a museum you you have to get it to match what was there you can't just do whatever you want and so the precision of the of the instructions testifies This isn't the final thing. This is just a picture of something that's greater. And that's the tabernacle that was made without hands. The holy place that was made without hands. The one that was made by God. They could understand. They couldn't necessarily understand the parables. But they should be able to understand this thing was not the end. That sacrificial system was not the end. It was clearly weak in its design because it was not supposed to deceive them it was supposed to show them and exhibit to them that something more was needed and the faithful saw it isaiah said you know god tells isaiah i did not delight in in all your offerings they make me want to vomit they knew that it, would, it required something more, but it was so much easier just to go back to these forms and not care about the substance. And we need to make sure that we care about the substance and not the form. With that, let's go to verses 23 and 24. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he starts with therefore. So he's been making the argument that the new covenant was more like a a will and testament and not like the other covenants. Because the testator had to die for it to come into effect. The testator had to die for it to have power. So the immediately preceding verse, Hebrews 9.22 said, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So the new covenant is like a will, which required the shedding of blood. Because in it, the transgressions of the law are actually forgiven. It's not like the atonement that the bulls and goats made where they just had to make atonement again. It's not just that ceremonial uncleanness was forgiven, which is what so much of the blood that was spilled, it wasn't actually spilled because of sin. It was spilled because of of being unclean ceremonially and not actual transgressions of the law. And remember what God said. He said, obey me is what I want, not the sacrifices. Obey me. Those are the actual transgressions of the law, not being unclean. So that along with almost all things in the first covenant were purified with blood, that explains the need for the shedding of Christ's blood. So it was necessary. And that, that idea of being necessary, the word means that it was bound, like it was connected to, it was tied to the things that went before, that because of the, what went before, it meant that this thing had to happen. Because of how God had ordered the sacrificial system. It didn't just point to the sacrifice of Christ. It meant that the sacrifice of Christ was required. In order to have access to God. It means that to give access in the parable since the parable was describing a truth and they set this up so it could be seen year after year that there had to be one that was a better sacrifice that ascended into the holy of holies that went into the presence of God. By assigning the parable and telling them to do the parable, God's binding himself to fulfill the parable. He told them to maintain the antitype, which meant that the type had to come. And that word copies, the word, it says that the copies, and that word copies, it's a lot more closer to an exhibit. So God set up like an exhibit, and I think this is a good, it's a good way to see it, and there's lots of parallels there with the idea that God set these things up as an exhibit. It's like, you know, if you go to a museum and you see the model of a volcano, You're not supposed to look at the model of a volcano and go, oh, that's a volcano. No, you look at the model of a volcano and you immediately go, well, there must be a mountain somewhere that is this shape that has this cone at the top that lava comes out of. Nobody ever looks at a museum and thinks that the volcano in that, that case is actually a volcano. They recognize it's just an exhibit. And that's what all those laws are about. That's the the idea. All those laws. It's like you're going through, and you go through Exodus and Leviticus, and it's like you're going through a living museum. And you're not supposed to go, that's the real thing. You're supposed to go, well, obviously, they're just enacting something so that you can see what the real thing is like. That's what all the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament were about. They were about this putting on a show so that people could look at them and go, oh, that's what the real thing is like. The copies of the things in heaven. They were, they were just these exhibits so that we could understand what heaven looks like. That's what, that's what the tabernacle was. So God set up the tabernacle and all the services and all the sacrifices as an exhibit so that people, because when you go into a museum and you look at the exhibits, you go, well, this must be reflecting on something. This must, there must be something real that's behind it. When you look at a museum, it's easy to see it's an exhibit, just like it was easy for them to see if they thought about it. It was easy for them to see this can't be the real thing. It required all the blood of all the firstborn sons of Egypt, but now it just requires the blood of a goat. Really? To free them from slavery in Egypt requires the blood of all those people, but to free them of slavery to sin requires a goat. It's ridiculous on its face. They were to know, we are to remember when we look at those things. They're just like a museum exhibit that's supposed to teach us about a reality that's much greater than what the picture has. And it was easy for them to see it was an exhibit if they had just paid attention. Because God, before God told them to set up the whole system, they said after God had given, spoken the Ten Commandments to them in Deuteronomy five twenty three and through 27, So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness. We have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fires we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear and do it they knew they couldn't approach God. They all knew they couldn't approach God. And they all knew that that sacrifice that the high priest made so that he could go in the Holy of Holies once a year, that didn't mean they could approach the God on the mountain. That didn't mean that they could approach the God who caused the thunderings and the lightning and the, the melting of rocks and the the... the the terror and the darkness and all the things that were associated with God, they understood from the start, from the establishment of the sacrificial system, when they set up the tabernacle and God is at the top of Mount Sinai, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the tabernacle was just an exhibit. That it couldn't be the real thing. Because they said, we don't want the real thing. We don't want to approach the real God. And so God goes, I'll give you a picture of what it's like. And that's what he did with the tabernacle. None of them, when they did the sacrifice in the tabernacle, none of them, when they they went to the high priest and they anointed Aaron and consecrated Aaron and his sons, they didn't go, oh, now we can climb up the mountain. Because if they really thought it was the real thing, that would have been their response. Now we can climb up the mountain. But they all stayed at the foot of the mountain because they knew it wasn't real they knew it was just a picture and not a reality God had them set up an exhibit because they didn't want the real thing that was too frightening to approach the holy of holies that was too frightening to go into the presence of God so these are copies of the things in heaven that they should be purified with these. So if the exhibition was cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats, if it was made pure through the shedding of the blood of animals, through the sprinkling of that blood on the tabernacle and on its utensils to make it consecrated to God, but it didn't reconcile the people. It's obviously something else was needed. It's obvious something greater was needed. They made those sacrifices, but it didn't mean they could climb Mount Sinai. It didn't mean they could actually approach the living God. I mean, so the high priest could go in behind the veil once a year for an hour or something, or probably not even that long. But it didn't mean they could go into the presence of God. They knew it was just a type, they knew it was just an exhibition. So the heavenly things, if the exhibit used the blood of bulls and goats then what should we expect of the real think of that picture again of like in a a museum where you have an exhibit of a volcano and they have you know they have the fake lava come out well everybody knows that's not what real lava is like everybody knows that the real lava is completely different the liquid stone that comes out of a volcano is a lot different than anything that they put in a museum. It's like a science fair project where you mix, I think it's baking soda and vinegar together, and it spews out. It kind of looks like a volcano. Nobody goes, that's a volcano. But if, if you have that as the picture of the volcano, you have to know real lava is a lot bigger, a lot greater, a lot more significant than the stuff spewing out of your science fair project. And so, if the science fair project required blood of bulls and goats, what blood's really required? And the true, what's required, if that's what's required just for the exhibit? It says, the heavenly things themselves... So to enter into the real heavenly things, the true things that those other things are just a picture of, it needs to have better sacrifices than those. It required categorically better sacrifices than the tabernacle required. All those bulls, heifers, goats, sheep, birds, grain, wine, all the things that they had to sacrifice that was required, that was just an exhibit of the holy place's So for the real one, it had to be much better. It had to be a much better sacrifice. It had to far exceed the types and the shadows that were in the offering of the Old Covenant. (coughs) Which ties back to Christ. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands. When Jesus Christ was sacrificed, it's not so that he could go behind the veil in the temple. It wasn't so that he could just go into the shadow. He was a better sacrifice because he was going to the true tabernacle, the holy place made without hands, not the holy place made with hands. All the detail layouts of the models, all these things about this is what the, the, the lampstand, make sure that you make it like it looked that I showed you up on the, on the mountain, all those things that, that Moses was instructed to make sure that he had exact copies of that they were supposed to be made very precisely. It's so that they could be made with hands. It's so that they could be an exhibit. It's like somebody making a museum exhibit of a volcano. Everybody knows. That means they couldn't make a volcano. All they could do was make an exhibit of it. Because if they could make the volcano, they'd just make the volcano. Why do an exhibit if you could make the real thing? (coughs) But they were making it with hands. Which ties down back to the picture of Daniel 2, where it's talking about the kingdoms of this world. All the kingdoms of the world were made with hands, but then all of a sudden a kingdom will come after them that will destroy all those kingdoms. That will be categorically different because it's made without hands. It wouldn't be through the strength of man. It wouldn't be through the actions of man. It would be through God, what God does. And that's the same picture here. The true tabernacle is not made with hands. The true tabernacle is not made by the strength of man. It's not made by the work of man. It's made by the commandment of God. The tabernacle that Christ entered into was not a tabernacle that man could erect. Because we can only do physical things. That's the extent of what we can do with our hands. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we are purely carnal. There's nothing spiritual about us. So, With our hands, there's no spiritual work we can do except through the power of God. So all we can do is make physical things. But when Christ came, Christ set up a spiritual tabernacle because he can do spiritual things because he is spiritual. And he can erect spiritual places and he can make it so that we can have a promise of going into the true tabernacle where God the Father dwells. So it's important to understand that the writer of Hebrews is saying holy places plural not singular <coughs> meaning that the holy, both the holy place and the holy of holies both of those are exhibits of real things but those things are just exhibits I struggle a bit with understanding this because it says it's copies of heavenly things but I think it's not that both places are in heaven both places are spiritual though and not just physical Or not, I mean, they're, yeah, not just physical. That's a good term. And so I think that the correct interpretation is that the holy place is on earth where priests can go in and out of, and the holy of holies is in heaven. And the picture of the ascension is Christ going behind the veil like the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. And so that the holy place, both of those holy places are erected without hands. Because the carnal man becomes spiritual. That's what salvation is. And the holy places that God erects without hands are not just in heaven. It's also in the heart of every believer. Romans 8, 6-9 For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He makes his people into a holy place. He makes his people so that they're spiritual. And this is his work. It's not the work of hands. That idea of the showbread, the Word of God, the lampstand, the Spirit and the light of God, the altar of incense, praying with God, these are all things that happen when Christ dwells in you, when Christ makes you spiritual, when he makes you a holy place, because that's where the Spirit of God is. Because where God is, it is holy. And so those are copies of the true the tabernacle was copies. That word copies there is not the same as the copies back that was, it was like an exhibit. This copy is basically anti-type. Antitopos we usually think of the <coughs> well, that this is those things are antitype, and the true is the type. So the tabernacle was just antitypes of the true tabernacle. And when Christ died and he rose again, he became spiritual, and he went into the holy place and, and he dwelt among us so that we could go into the holy place. And then he ascended to heaven to the Holy of Holies so that we know we can go in, that he has borne us before the Father, and that if we are His, if we believe in Christ, that that we can go into the Holy of Holies through the sacrifice that he made. So he went into heaven itself. He was going to the true Holy of Holies. And again, this isn't like it was a secret. It wasn't like that people didn't understand this before. Solomon understood when he set up the tabernet, or the temple that this is just an exhibit. This isn't where God really was. He says in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Solomon's not going, oh, this temple, that's where God dwells. Like the Jews were thinking when Christ came. Solomon goes, clearly this isn't it. Clearly, this is just a picture of something else. Clearly, you don't dwell here. But yet, they had forgotten what Solomon said. They had forgotten what the elders of Israel said. They had forgotten and they wanted to say that the figure was the real thing. When from the beginning, the figure was never the real thing. It was always just a picture. It was always just an exhibit. It was always just an anti-type. So Jesus Christ went into the Holy of Holies. And so now to appear, where the, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would bear the names of Israel on his breastplates and on his shoulders. This picture bearing the true Israel into the presence of God. The high priest would do that like we would call it now performance art. That's what he was doing. He was just doing this performance so that people could see it and go, Oh, I see that. As opposed to it being real. Christ, though, he actually bore those who were his. He bore their names into the Father as a promise. He bore the book of life to the Father as a promise that these people would live and have eternal life. Christ didn't just bear it in this, this type. He, bear it, bear it. he bore it in the reality. He appeared in the presence of God. He returned to the Father, not just for His sake. He returned to the Father so that He could bear us before the Father. Because in returning to the Father, He bore all of true Israel into the presence of God. He bore us, representing us. He went into the presence of God for us. So that we could be reconciled. So that we could have our sins forgiven. So that we could have eternal life rather than eternal dead. He bore us, those who believe, those who have faith, into the presence of God, not in a parable, but in a reality. Verses 25 and 26. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. not that he should offer himself often. He died, and if you say, well, this is the picture, and the picture had to be done every year, so when he died, doesn't he need to start to die every year? And the answer is no, he doesn't need to keep dying. Again, think of a museum where you have an exhibit of a volcano. The volcano keeps going off. The volcano goes off again. Or, you know, I go to a lot of museums that have, like, battle plans of wars. And they show with lights where all the troops move. Well, that starts over and it plays again and it starts over and it plays again. But the real battle happened once. It doesn't keep happening. And so when we look at it, you don't go, well, the battle had to happen every year because the exhibit keeps repeating. You go, the fact that the exhibit keeps repeating proves that it's not the real thing. The exhibit of what Christ was going to do kept repeating that in no way meant that what Christ did, his sacrifice, needed to be repeated. They had to repeat it because it didn't work. It was just a model. It was just an exhibit. Christ doesn't need to repeat it because it works. It, caught, it solved the problem. It bore the true sons of Israel. Those who truly have faith, those who are the people of God, it, he bore them into the presence of God the Father. Those high priest, the, the Levitical high priest would go into the holy place annually on the day of atonement. He would kill a bull for himself and for his house. And he would release a scapegoat. And then he would sacrifice the other goat as a burnt offering for the people. Here's what it says in Leviticus 16:14 through 16. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions. For all their sins, so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He does the Day of Atonement, and he does this picture, and he's going this is what's required because you're unclean for god's presence to remain you're unclean this is not about going in so that you can bear people into the presence of god it's not about going up to mount sinai it's so that that god who descended and agreed to tabernacle with them that his presence wouldn't be taken away it didn't solve the problem it wasn't the the exhibit didn't pretend like it was actually solving the problem it didn't pretend like it was actually removing the sins cleansing the sins making a holy people that could go into the presence of god an exhibit at a museum doesn't pretend to be the real thing And, and god and laying out his law and laying out all these the sacrificial system he wasn't making it look like it was the real thing he made it clear that it was not the real thing if you read the words so the high priest enters the most holy place. His entering in the most holy place was a picture of Christ ascending to the Father to sit in his presence forever, evermore. But it did not allow the Levitical high priest to stay. He had to leave. He had to go in with the blood of the bull and then he had to go in with the blood of the goat. He, had, he couldn't even stay long enough to deal with his own sin. He couldn't go in and say, I can stay after I've dealt with my sin for the people. He had to go back out and sacrifice the goat. And then he would have to repeat it again as testimony that it didn't actually make atonement for the people. It didn't actually cause their sin to be removed. It didn't work. He would go every year with the blood of another. Every year he would go in. And every year that he went in and then he had to flee from there. He had to sprinkle the blood seven times then he had to leave. Every time he did that he was not testifying to this is how you're reconciled to God. He's testifying this is just a picture of how you're reconciled with God because this doesn't reconcile anyone to God. It was very obvious. If it was reconciled to God, he could have stayed there, but he couldn't stay there. He had to leave. Christ doesn't need to leave. He can stay because He worked. it worked. He did reconcile his people to God. Couldn't be the substance; it could only be an exhibit, because he had to do it year by year. And if Christ was the same way, then he would have to suffer often. If that repetition was required, if Christ's sacrifice was required to be repeated, then it had to be there from the start. Because if the, if that was what it was supposed to be an exhibit of what God did annually, then God would have had to do it annually. He would have had to do it time after time after time since the foundation of the world. Every year, Christ would have had to be crucified. So if it's not finished in Christ, then it had to always be there in Christ. If it was more than once, then it always had to be made. And we know people were saved before. And so, so God is saying through the writer of Hebrews, look, you can understand, like look at Enoch, Genesis 5, 24. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. We know Enoch was saved. Seth was probably saved that seems likely we know people were saved right from very early so if it was going to happen more than once and Christ had to be sacrificed then he had to be sacrificed before Abel made the the offering that was acceptable to God he had to be sacrificed that early But Christ wasn't sacrificed that early, which means it can't repeat. It has to be once. The exhibit can be repeated over and over again. But now once, only once does Christ need to be sacrificed because it is what the other one was just a picture of. So he was that. But now, once at the end of the ages, Christ was sacrificed once. That word translated end. You know, it comes from, more from the idea of completeness rather than like the limit or the extension. So through Christ's coming, the ages are complete. God has done various ways to represent reconciliation to himself through Noah, through Abraham, through the sacrificial system of, of Moses. But there's no new ages coming. They were completed in Christ. These are the last days. That's the same thing that the last days mean. God doesn't need to come and do something else. He's going to come, says in these verses, He's going to come not for salvation, or excuse me, He's going to come not to deal with sin, but for salvation. But it's done. There are no more ages. There is no more figure that we should expect except Christ to come to bring us into the Holy of Holies. That's all that's left. It's the end of the ages. He sacrificed once and all those other ages, all those other systems that were these pictures, now that the substance has come, we don't need the shadows. And there won't be another shadow because the substance has come. The, but once at the end of the ages he has appeared. Again, this word appeared, when you read appeared, we can think of appeared and mean a lot of different things. But this means shining is what it comes from. This isn't just like... Oh, it's subtly. You can see him off in the distance. This is, it's coming. He's coming with boldness. He's coming with a bright glow. He's coming so that you can't ignore it, that it can be seen. He's making it as plain as he can make it. The sacrifice of Christ, he made it as plain as possible to the nations. And he appeared. He came and he did this to put away sin. That word put away means to cancel, to make it have no effect where they would go in and they would do off these sacrifices year after year and they'd have to come back and do them again. They'd offer a burnt sacrifice because they saw this sin in their life and then they'd have to see another sin and they'd have to offer another burnt sacrifice. And all of them showed they didn't deal with sin. All those exhibits that God put in place didn't actually deal with sin. It dealt with physical consequences. It dealt with the, uh, repent, or, uh, all these things with hands it dealt with. It didn't deal with the spiritual forgiveness of sin. But he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He came to destroy sin. And it worked. Or he would have to keep being sacrificed. He doesn't need to keep being sacrificed, which means that his sacrifice worked. I think in a lot of churches, they don't believe that his sacrifice worked. They don't believe that Christ came to deal with sin, to put away sin. They just think Christ came to forgive people of their sins, but that's not what the Bible says. He came to cancel it. He came to deal with sin. He came to fix the problem. He came to make it so that a people can go into the Holy of Holies. That's why Christ came, and that's why he sacrificed himself not to do what the sacrifice of bulls and goats did, which is make people feel better about themselves without actually fixing the, sa- the, the problem that they had with themselves. That's what the sacrificial system did. They went to the museum and they saw the exhibit and they go, ooh, we know things now. Instead of so actually seeing the reality and going, now we actually understand. That exhibit didn't solve any of the problems. He didn't want the blood of bulls and goats. He wanted a contrite heart. And so so Christ made a sacrifice of himself so that he would have a people that would obey him. He came so that he would deal with sin. Not just a picture of dealing with sin, which is the Old Testament system. But he he actually came to deal with sin. To put it away, to break it, to destroy it. Verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So as it is appointed, through the sin of Adam, through the sin nature that we bear, through our existence, throughout our existence. Since the wages of sin is death, it is appointed there's a correct expectation that all of us were born to die because this is what sin does and all of us have sinned. All of us are conceived in sin. All of us have a nature of sin, which means that when we're born, and that word there of appointed is more like reserved. When we're born, we are reserved. Death is reserved for us doesn't mean that you necessarily have to come to the appointment god can be like enoch and he can take you away but it's as soon as we're born we all recognize that it's just a sign that you're going to die that's what birth is it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of other things there but birth is when that baby is born right away you know that means that unless christ returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth they will die It's appointed for men to die once. They experience death once and only once. There's no idea of reincarnation. Like I think it's Hinduism and other places want to pretend. Because that way they can escape the judgment. No. It's appointed for men to die once. And then after this, after death, that's just physical death. Spiritual death is far more significant physical death is just about your body spiritual death is far more significant because it lasts forever and there is no end there is no expectation of an end there is no appointment that somehow this will stop after this the judgment after you die christ will sit and he will judge based on whether you were trusting in your own works even though it was clear from the beginning that Christ that God had to sacrifice animals to clothe Adam and Eve they couldn't do it themselves all of the testimony of 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 the world and of scripture is you can't save yourself one sin makes you guilty and you stand condemned before God because of one sin because God is holy and the solution of that is to pretend like God's not holy, which makes him a sinner and guilty of sin and guilty of all the sin in the world because that's the only conclusion you can come to or man's guilty. And we deserve condemnation and something else needs to happen because God can rightly send any of us to hell because one part of the law, breaking anything, disobeying any commandment, is worth eternal damnation. That's been clear from the beginning. Your own works can never reconcile you to God because they always fall short of the glory of God. And you'd have to make a God that was not glorious for Him to accept you without dealing with your sins. We need works that will not fall short of the glory of God and only Christ can do that. We can't do works that will not fall short of the glory of God. Sin is mixed in everything we do. It's the nature of our... nature only Christ can make atonement to actually bring us into the presence of the father so Christ was offered once because his sacrifice was was sufficient it wasn't like the 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 goat and the scapegoat it wasn't like the bull that the high priest had to sacrifice year by year that all just proved their insufficiency his single sacrifice, he suffered once. That proved that it was sufficient because he could ascend to the Father. He could go into the most holy place. We don't see him now as a testimony that his sacrifice was sufficient. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like Aaron sacrificing the bull and he goes in and sprinkles it on the altar and then runs out. Where he has to make sure he has a big enough cloud of incense so that he doesn't see the glory seed because then he'd die. Christ could ascend, and He can sit in the presence of God. He can sit at His right hand. And so we shouldn't expect to see Him because He's not driven out like the Levitical high priest. Christ was offered once to bear the sin of many, the sins of many. And so, just like the Levitical high priest, it's that exhibit of bearing the children of Israel on their breastplate with these jewels, bearing them into the presence of of the God of God Christ wasn't the exhibit he actually bore those who were the elect those who God was going to save or had saved he bore them into the presence of the father through his sacrifice he bore those precious people that were precious because he made them precious because he declared them precious and he ascend, he died and he ascended to the father and he bears the true Israel into the presence of God into the eternal presence. So we can say if you're saved, you can say you have citizenship in heaven. Because Christ has borne you there. But that produces a real effect now. And that real effect is that we're eagerly waiting. To bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait. Eagerly wait's not a bad translation, but the the Greek carries something that the idea of seeing something afar off And having a desire for that. having It's like you see it and you know it's there. It's not doubt. It's about faith and having hope hope that, that those who are saved, they're looking towards the day when Christ will return. They're looking towards the day when they will be brought into the Holy of Holies. They're looking towards the day when they will be resurrected physically so that their sin will be taken away and they can be in the presence of God forevermore so this is for those who eagerly wait for him we have to be eagerly waiting for that day of judgment and when we think about it right broad is the way that leads to destruction there are many who go by that path and the whole world will be judged by fire just like the picture of noah's flood where all those billions of people died and it was probably billions And they all drowned except for eight. And Noah was supposed to say, this is a good day. Because God said, I cannot strive with man any longer. Their sin just, I'm not putting up with their sin any longer, and he killed them. So Noah could say it was a good day, even though though all those people died. And we're supposed to be eagerly waiting for the day when Christ returns, even though most people will be sent to hell. For wide is the path that leads to destruction. There are many who go by it. We're still supposed to be eagerly waiting for that day. Because for the same reason Noah should have been. Because we're saying, sin is being put away. Christ came. He died to put away sin. He came to make an end of it. And when he returns, he will defeat the last enemy, which is death. And he will cast the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. He will cast them into the lake of fire. And the world will be the holy place. And it will be the holy of holies. And God will dwell here. And even though there's all those things that you can think of, all the suffering and all these other things, to be a Christian means you eagerly wait for that day. You eagerly wait to see sin destroyed. You eagerly wait for sin to be destroyed in your life. You eagerly wait for sin to be destroyed in the world. You have to be eagerly waiting for that judgment. We need to say with John in Revelation twenty two twenty, 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even after prophesying all the death, all the destruction, all these things that were going to happen, John's response will, even with that, even come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what it looks like to wait eagerly. Are you waiting eagerly for the coming of Christ? He will appear a second time. He will appear at the end of this age. He started this age. And he will appear at the end of this age when the heaven and earth will be remade and he will bring the most holy place with him to earth and full reconciliation will be made between God and man and we'll actually be able to ascend Mount Sinai and we'll actually be able to go into the presence of God and we will be like Moses who could go into the presence of God and wasn't terrified and he was just a picture of the law. Mount Sinai is just a picture of heaven, of the Holy of Holies. But when Christ returns, he will appear a second time so that we can go into the Holy of Holies. He'll bring the Holy of Holies with him. God the Father and God the Son and the earth will be remade. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth and we can dwell there. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who trust in the finished work of Christ and nothing that they did with their own hands, So he will appear a second time apart from sin. He will not come to forgive sin. He will not come to make atonement. He will not come the second time for the same reasons he came the first time. The first time he came and he did it and it's done. He was successful. He didn't fail in any way. He doesn't come back and deal with sin in that way the next time. The next time he comes in judgment. You have to trust in his first coming and you have to eagerly wait for his second coming. That's what's required to be saved. The next time he comes, he'll come for salvation. He'll come to save those who eagerly wait for him. He will come to save them from the sin that fills this world. We use the term glorification when all the sin that separates us from God, when it's all taken away from us so that we can be in the presence of God in our body forevermore. That's what we're supposed to be eagerly waiting for. Are you eagerly waiting for sin to be done with in your life? If so, here's a sign that you're eagerly waiting for sin to be done with in your life. You're trying to put sin away now. Because if you're not trying to put sin away now, you're not eagerly waiting for sin to be put away. I can tell you that. If you're not dealing with sin in your life now, you don't care. So don't lie to yourself and pretend, pretend like you're eagerly waiting for Christ to come and put away your sin. If you're not doing it now. When Christ comes, He comes to put away all your sin. He comes to make it so you have no sin nature at all so that you can go into the presence of God and not die. If you're eagerly waiting, you do something about it. You do something about it now. But when He comes, He will create a new heaven and earth. We will be in the holy of holies. Heaven and earth will become one. It says in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both that which are in heaven and earth, which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. He is going to make everything reconciled. He's going to bring everything together. So that earth itself will be in the holy of holies. Isn't that an amazing thing? But he does that by putting away sin. Because that's what's required. That's what's required for the Father to dwell here. That's what's required for the glorified Son to dwell here eternally. Is he has to put away sin out of the world. So let me give you some applications. We should recognize how many people fall to the temptation... And because they fall to the temptation, we should recognize how easy it is for us to fall to the temptation. To take what's symbolic and pretend like it's the real thing. That's what the Pharisees did with the parables, the Old Testament parables. They treated them like that old covenantal sacrificial system, that it was the real thing. That it wasn't just like a museum exhibit. But we can do the same. This is, these are these are errors that, that constantly enter into the church. Baptismal regeneration, that's that same error. This baptism that's a picture of a spiritual reality that happened when the Holy Spirit changed your heart. All of a sudden you make the shadow, this picture, this thing that's symbolizing it. You make the symbol the reality. You do the same with the Lord's Supper. That's what Roman Catholics do with all kinds of rules about when you have to take it because if the... If, because, because Jesus Christ became that way for that was his body, and when the priest breaks it, that they're sacrificing Christ again. They've done exactly the same thing. They've done exactly what the Pharisees did. They pretend like these things that were just symbolic, that they're the substance, that they're the reality. Christ has died once for all. He doesn't need to keep being sacrificed. There's so many that see that the parallel parables that god has put in place they think that they require a literal interpretation even though it's obvious most many people who are baptized they don't walk in faith afterwards if baptismal regeneration was true then anybody who was baptized they would become holy and we all know that's not true it has to be symbolic any more that the the sins of the person who made the burnt offering it meant they went and sinned no more of course they didn't or people who take the Lord's Supper, and they go, oh yeah, this is, this is, I'm eating his flesh, so I'm one with him. And then they walk out and sin. You know, you don't get the pedophile scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, unless you start with the idea that the symbolic is the substance. So we should watch for people who take symbols and treat them as substance. And remember, this happens in evangelical circles as well there's people saying there has to be a third temple right christ can't return until a third temple's built well they want another physical temple they think that was real instead of heaven being the temple right i mean it's the same problem this is what happens in the church all the time right this is dispensational eschatology Israel this type it's not a type it's the real thing they're the people who Christ came to save no they're not Christ came to save the true Israel and they get confused with the picture and the reality make sure you don't get confused between the picture and the reality when God judged Israel when he divorced the northern kingdom when he divorced the southern kingdom he's very clearly saying they're just a picture they're not the real ones they're just a picture. Let's make sure that we don't confuse the parable with reality because it's happening all around us. Make sure you don't get absorbed into it because a lot of people profess God with their lips. What they really want is they want the parable on earth rather than the spiritual reality of going up Mount Sinai into the presence of God. Another application, we should recognize the greatness of the differences, including the expectations from God, from those who have the substance and not just the shadows. You know, so many people in church are like the, young, the boys and the young men here. right? They want to go and play guns. They take a stick and they pretend like it's a gun, or they take an airsoft gun and they pretend like it's a gun. But a lot of people in church do the same thing. A real gun is a lot different than an airsoft gun. A real gun like blows holes into people. But people come to church and they think that it's just this play thing. But church is real. God is real. His work in your heart is real. His breaking the power of sin is real. His cleansing is real. His, his sanctification is Real. But if you think the exhibit is real rather than the substance, all of a sudden you think that it can just have no effect. It can be not, I mean, just like you can point an airsoft gun at somebody and shoot them and they don't like lay over and die. Christianity is a picture of something that's real that actually changes people. And too often we just play. Too often we just pretend. And we look at it and we just think it's an exhibit like the old exhibits in the Old Testament. Instead of going, no, this is. God promises that he will. That he will defeat sin. That he will break the power of sin. That he will take us in to the Father. These are real things that God promises that he will do. We should have greater expectations of the efficacy of the church. We should have greater expectations about the efficacy <coughs> the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. The Israelites thought because it maintained them as a people, that proved that these were the real things. That's not what proves that they're the real things. Breaking the power of sin is what proves that it's real. <coughs> another application consider how many animals God has killed (coughs) even King Solomon killing 20,000 bulls in one day think of the scale of that whole system how it was implemented it was all implemented all those millions of animals died for 1400 years so God could say this other thing is far more important He, caused, he set up that exhibit so that people could look at it for 1,400 years so that they could understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice. <coughs> all that death, all that blood, all that should remind us of how serious Christ's sacrifice is. <coughs> Don't belittle the sacrifice of Christ. Here's a way to belittle the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus loves you. If you just say to somebody who's dead in their sins and trespasses, if you say to somebody who hates God because they're bound in sin, they're slaves to sin, and you turn and say, Jesus loves you, you have just rejected the need of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have just said it means nothing. Christ caused all those animals for, for 1,400 years to die. All that blood so it would be pouring down the street in Jerusalem so that we could say his sacrifice is important. His sacrifice is everything in the world. And when you go tell people Jesus loves them, when they are dead in their sin, you hate Christ. Because you're saying his sacrifice was worthless. It was meaningless. And how often... Do people that call themselves Christians do that? And it says his sacrifice means nothing and God says his sacrifice means everything. His sacrifice means everything. (coughs) Let's make sure that when we're evangelizing, God said his sacrifice is what separates the sinners from those who will go into the presence of God if you want to act like people will go into the presence of God without his sacrifice, you're even worse than the Pharisees. You're worse than the Sadducees. You're worse than the Israelites who God condemned. Christ's sacrifice means everything. We need to make sure in our evangelism that's what we're saying. And we we just belittle it and say, Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say that anywhere. That's a lie from hell. Because it means you don't need the sacrifice of Christ. If God loves you, you don't need the sacrifice of Christ. No, God condemns you. You need the sacrifice of Christ. A better sacrifice was needed than those millions of animals. That wasn't sufficient. The millions of animals was not sufficient for God to forgive a sin. Not a single sin. You understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice. We should be so hesitant to be flippant about it. When evangelizing, when talking to people who are struggling in the church, when talking to people who are struggling with assurance of salvation, don't be flippant about the sacrifice of Christ. Don't go, oh, I know God loves you. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's an incredibly dangerous thing to say. Because it's rejecting how significant Christ's sacrifice was. It minimizes the gulf between God and man. It makes it seem like God and man are close together. No, God and man are so far apart. All those animals, those millions of animals could do nothing. Nothing at all. But Christ, the perfect sacrifice, could accomplish what all those animals couldn't do. Don't minimize the sacrifice of Christ. Another application. Christ died once. And because it was efficacious, it was done and never needs to be repeated. The Roman Catholic Church thinks they're crucifying him every time they have mass and break the bread. They say they're holding his physical body and they're breaking it in half. That's such a blatant rejection of everything taught in the Bible. It's making Christ's sacrifice of, n- of sin Sacrifice of no importance whatsoever. But it's not just the Roman Catholics that do it. In prison, a large number of people accept Christ every week. They go to the altar, they pray a prayer, and then the next week they go to the altar and they pray a prayer, and then the next week they go to the altar and pray a prayer. You know, some Pentecostal denominations, whenever you sin, you have to be baptized again, so you just keep getting rebaptized because baptism saves you. These things are out there. And they're out there and they're repeated and they're always repeated for the same reason. The same reason that they had to repeat the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Because they know it doesn't work. They know it doesn't work. That's why it has to be repeated. That's why the high priest had to go year by year is because the sins in Israel weren't dealt with. The reason the Roman Catholics, they, they sacrifice Christ over and over again is because they know that their system, it doesn't work at all. Nobody's cleansed. Nobody's sin is broken by that. So they just have to go do it again. The Pentecostals, oh, you sinned after you were baptized. Let's baptize you again. So You can baptized 20, 30, 40 times. All of it shows these things don't work. Keep praying a prayer. Keep going to an altar. I'll pray a prayer with you. You're saved. Oh, you sinned. Well, I'll pray a prayer with you. You're saved. Oh, you're sinned. They repeat it because it has no effect. Make sure that you see the effect of Christ in your life. Because his work, it doesn't need to be repeated because it works. He actually breaks the power of sin. He actually takes you from being a slave of sin and makes you a slave of righteousness. It works, so it doesn't need to keep being repeated. The people who see it not working, they want to repeat it, don't want to repeat it. Instead, walk in it, abide in Him, walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. Another verse. You know, this verse is very clearly against the full preterist view. And the reason that I raise this is a lot of you probably don't even know about full preterism. Full preterism is the idea that everything that Christ is going to do is done, including his second coming. And full preterism has been getting a lot of play because Gary DeMar, who is fairly well known in the homeschool circles, is at a minimum flirting with full preterism. If he's not actually a full preterist, he won't actually admit his position in a lot of ways. He kind of dances around it. But let's just be very clear. Full preterism is blatantly against this verse. The verse says that when Christ comes, those who are eagerly waiting for him, they're saved. Full preterist says you shouldn't be eagerly waiting for Christ. Therefore, therefore, Full preterists are not saved. That's what the verse says. It's not a minor issue. The whole point of salvation is not to go, oh, we're fixed now. The whole point of salvation is to go, we will be fixed. Yes, the power of sin in our life has been broken, but we still sin. But the day will come when we will be glorified, when we, corruption will put on incorruption, when we will be able to enter into the presence of God. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's when, in Romans 2, when it says that we will be judged according to our works, is it for those who seek eternal life, those who are eagerly waiting for, for Christ to return, or you're seeking things of this world, that's how God judges your works. Are you looking are you looking for the coming of Christ? These verses say, if you have no anticipation of Christ's coming, of his return for salvation, if you're not eagerly waiting for it, if you don't see it afar off and know it's coming, which is what the words more mean, you see it afar off and you know it's coming, if you're not doing that, then you're not saved. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. That's what our lives need to be about, looking towards the return of Christ. Last application, all of us have an appointment with death. All of us, from the youngest in here to the oldest, your body will fail you. You all have that expectation. And after that, you will be judged. You will appear before Christ. And he will say one of two things to you. He will either say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or he will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's what he's going to say to you. He's going to say one of those things to you. Jesus Christ came to put away sin. He came to cancel sin. He came to cancel its power. He broke the power of sin, which is the fear of death. That's what Christ came to do. Has the power of sin been broken in your life? Or do you practice lawlessness? Because he will either say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or he will say to you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Which is he going to say to you? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you that you made a way, that you are the truth, the way and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. We thank you that you made a way so that we can go into the Holy of Holies, that you made a way so that we can go into the presence of the unveiled god with all your glory without fear without without expectation of of destruction you made that way through your sacrifice so that you could bear us into the holy of holies lord as we live our lives let that be our focus as we live our lives let that be our expectation that that's what we're living for, that's what we're moving towards, your glory, to see it in its fullness, to see your holiness in its fullness. Lord, we thank you that that's what you have brought us to, that that is what you have given us, a promise of, a surety of through your Holy Spirit, that one day we, we would be in your presence just as Christ is in your presence now, that he will bear us into your presence. Lord, we look forward to the day when you return. When all the problems of this world, when all the the effects of sin disappear from this world. We look forward to that day, Lord, and let us act like we look forward to it. Let us put away sin in our lives now. Let us work to put away sin in the world around us. For you came to remake the world. Lord, as we as we think of this passage, let us let us apply it to our lives by walking as a people that have an expectation that you will return for salvation. We ask this in your name. Amen.